0: This is On Being's Unheard Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Nathan Schneider. He's the author of God in Proof, The Story of a Search from the Ancients to the Internet, and Thank You, Anarchy, Notes from the Occupy Apocalypse. I spoke with him on August eighth, two 2014 at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Nathan Schneider at onbeing.org.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to this excellent week presented by the Department of Religion 2 o'clock Interfaith Lecture Series. I'm Maureen Ravegno, and I serve as Associate Director for the Department of Religion, bringing you greetings from Reverend Dr. Uh, Robert Franklin, who is our Director. So, uh, as we begin, we do have a few announcements today. Audio recordings of today's lecture will be available in the amphitheater gazebo later this afternoon, and video discs may also be ordered at the gazebo and picked up at a later time. For those who will be leaving Chautauqua tomorrow, we're so glad you've been here, and we will miss you so much. But we suggest that as you consider leaving, your, uh, that will, you will consider leaving your non-perishable foods for the food bank please leave them at the Scott Street entrance of Hurlbut Church or at the post office. One more announcement. This afternoon at 5 o'clock, we will celebrate once again Kabbalat Shabbat, the Jewish Welcoming the Sabbath service, which takes place each week at the Bell Tower. It is a lovely service, and if you've never been, I encourage you to go. You will absolutely love it. All are cordially welcomed to attend and participate. And these are the events sponsored by the Department of Religion, for which we thank you so much for your support. And now, our Interfaith Lecture Series this week has focused on the American consciousness. Let me offer a brief summary of our journey together through this topic this week. On Monday, Krista Tippett interviewed Roberto Mangobera Unger from Harvard Law School, one of the world's great living philosophers. He suggested that America is in a time in which the transformative imagination, to quote him, necessary to conceive of new ways of solving societal problems of inequality, oppression, and alienation, he says that the transformative imagination is paralyzed. We need as it were, prophets like Jefferson, Whitman, Lincoln, Emerson, and Dewey to help us redistribute advantage and power. Education is the key, he said, to this process of change and is, as it were again, a down payment on a future, a better future. Professor Unger thus welcomes the social dislocation caused by civil disobedience and disruption as, quote, Without trauma, there is no transformation," End quote. On Tuesday, after a long rainstorm delay, the interview with Professor Imani Perry of Princeton explored her understanding of race, difference, and prejudice in the 21st century. She felt that American consciousness rests upon a, quote, myth of our innocence, which makes honest, courageous dialogue about race and topics very difficult. Today, to improve the general welfare, everyone should be working on better strategies of power sharing. On Wednesday, Richard Rodriguez, formerly of the NewsHour, expressed frustration with our attempts to simplify complex conversations about culture and race by reducing them to binary black and white terms. He feels that intermixing is our reality, a brown reality but few are comfortable about acknowledging that nearly all of us are mixed in DNA and culture. He shifted the subject area of his latest book and the beauty of the quote-unquote desert religions through which God revealed God's self in time and space as one who is lonely for humans and humans who are in need of the divine. The sacred geography of these religions includes three special zones, according to Rodríguez, the mountaintop, the desert plain, and the cave of darkness. Kids on the Mexico-American border believe in American myths like Huck Finn and want to travel for improvement, but the country has lost belief in our own myths and has locked its doors. Today, there is a crisis among boys in schools and society, but... Professor Richard Rodriguez says girls are on the move, seizing opportunity as they go. He rejects the vocabulary of quote-unquote diversity, which derives, he says, from the word divide in terms of conceptual thinking. And yesterday on Thursday, Michelle Martin, host of Nightline, ABC News, and the recently canceled NPR show Tell Me More, reflected on her love of telling the rest of the story that modern headlines, news merely, she says, announces. Her favorite question to religious leaders in places where conflict and terror reign are, "What are your job at a time like this? Who are you in this scenario?" She quoted a rabbi that has observed that, quote, "Most coverage of religion in our time is infantile or incendiary," end quote. Michelle Martin pleaded with Chautauquans not to idly allow injustice and exclusion in their institutions and neighborhoods at home, but to do what you can do, she said, just do it. She urged against a phony politeness of colorblindness, but urged us to forge friendships with others for the sake of our democracy. And she countered Dr. Rodriguez's notion of diversity as a problem, highlighting the idea of biodiversity as a sign of vitality and beauty. And so, now to present today's program here in the Hall of Philosophy. Today's distinguished guests are, once again, Krista Tippett, host of On Being, whom we have all appreciated so enormously this week, and who will engage in conversation with Nathan Schneider, author, columnist, and editor on religion, resistance, and culture. And Krista will give us a fuller introduction to Nathan and the amazing accomplishments and wisdom that he brings to us today. We are indeed privileged to have these two extraordinary public intellectuals with us to complete this important week's conversation. You will be pleased to know that Nathan will be doing a book signing immediately after this lecture, which will take place on the porch of the Hall of Missions, and that his books will also be sold there as well. And we are most grateful and proud of the Joan Brown Campbell Department of Religion Endowment, which provides funding for this week's Interfaith Lecture Series. So now please join me in extending a very warm Chautauqua welcome to Krista Tippett and Nathan Schneider.
0: Thank you, Maureen. So um, I have a daughter who's 20 years old and um, a little bit wet, like when she was 13. She thinks she's smarter than me about just about everything. And she's not right some of the time. But actually, some of the time she is. Um, I, I see in her and I recall in myself in my early 20s this kind of brilliance that flashes up You know, this ability to see the world whole. And I think that Nathan Schneider is the rare human being who was able to be profoundly wise and articulate with that special brilliance, that far-seeing mind of young adulthood, and also gifted to write wonderfully about the world he came to see and the world he wants to help make. So we've had a lot of... uh, talk about diversity this week, as Maureen said. We've talked a lot about the limitations and the merits of this word. And it felt important to me to end this week um, with the perspective from the far side, um, for most of us, of the generational spectrum. To probe with this young public intellectual what it means to be human in this moment of transforming American consciousness. Oh, it can't be my earrings again. (laughs) I wore unobtrusive earrings for you, Mitch, today. All right. In this moment of transforming American consciousness, I'll say that again. So, actually, when I set out to write the introduction to Nathan, um, I discovered uh, his introduction of himself on his website or blog. And I don't know how many of you are on Twitter... I'm not, I'm not on Facebook. I've never been able to make that step. But one of the things I love, I really love and take joy in about Twitter, is the self-descriptive part. Um... You know that, that that there's a new way of learning to introduce ourselves in all our variety and particularity and quirkiness um, to others. That goes way beyond the way we used to know how to present ourselves in CVs. And Nathan Schneider's um, self-introduction is both poetic and you know deeply informative. It's going to tell you as much as I could have in 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 more in different terms. So I'm just going to read that. I'm Nathan Schneider, a writer and editor based in Brooklyn. I published a book each on God and the Occupy movement. Writing articles for a variety of publications from Harper's, The Nation, and The Chronicle of Higher Education to The New York to The New Inquiry and The Catholic Worker, worker keeps my notebooks filled. Editing the online religion magazine ki- Killing, sorry, editing the online religion magazine Killing the Buddha keeps me odd. Waging Nonviolence, a publication I co-founded, keeps me up on struggles for justice around the world. And being a contributing editor at the Social Science Research Council's online forum, the imminent frame keeps me in touch with the Academy. I'm so glad that you made this trip. So I want to start out, I'm not sure about this, when and in what year and where were you born?
2: (laughs) I was born in 1984. Wait. My Can is this working?
0: No. I try again. Hello. No. Is your is your green light on? Oh, maybe it's. It's just. No. It's not. No.
2: Great. Can you okay. Hear
0: me? Th- we'll talk about technology in a minute. <laughs> I thought I'd be
2: spared all that trouble by not wearing my earrings today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. You were born in 1984.
2: I was born in 1984 uh, and had the chance to experience a really rich uh, slice of. American religious diversity and pluralism in, in that upbringing. That was in Arlington, Virginia, okay. inside the Beltway, uh, uh, in the midst of the political circus, um, but in a very rich home uh, with a, a, a Jewish father and uh, a mother who'd grown up in the Protestant tradition. Uh, and both of them uh, together were were searchers. And, and I got to go along with that uh in the midst of my childhood.
0: Yeah, I, I, um, you write about your parents in a wonderful way, and um, I, I sense that they weren't just spiritual seekers, but spiritual experimenters. And I have to say, you know, you, you know, after millennia in which human beings, most human beings in most cultures inherited religious identity almost like they mm-hmm. inherited hair color and skin color, You are this new phenomenon of the 21st century, in this culture certainly, where you were invited to create your spiritual life yourself.
2: Yeah, you know, and I've been puzzling with the uniqueness of that, the feeling of uniqueness. Um, As I was growing up, I think I felt that there was something kind of strange about this upbringing and this circumstance. Um, That it was something not only new, but unusual around me. And Uh, one thing that I noticed as I got older, um, especially really as I started studying religion, um, in a more formal context, I started realizing actually this weirdness that I encountered is everywhere and I'm not alone in that. And then actually that this is not new to our time, that when we look back at, uh, at the past, that people were grappling with many of these questions as well, that globalization is not new, and the interchange of ideas among traditions is not new, and the kinds of struggles that we're going through um, are ones that you know many of the great thinkers and uh, experimenters, as you put it, um, of our religious traditions, who we kind of... Um, Ossify and contain and um, and, and uh, put into boxes and try to own and and uh, uh, control. Uh, we're actually, in many cases, working out of very similar uh, uh, circumstances.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And you kind of went on this on this quest, um, looking both across history at that ancient search that ancient inquiry into these big existential questions. And then you write, you know, one almost gone afternoon in November, as I stepped out into what sun remained in the day, a proof for the existence of God took hold of me. Well, Actually, I think this was be- at the beginning of your quest. Mm-hmm. But tell us a little bit about the nature of that
2: proof. Oh, gosh. Well, I try to avoid explaining what that experience was because I have no idea still. But, yeah, but see, I mean, what had happened was that um, around the time I was 17 or 18, this funny thing happened in the midst of this very interesting upbringing that I uh, found myself drawn into the Catholic Church. I, I was baptized uh, and and confirmed and, and uh, entered the church at age 18, At the Easter Vigil, and uh, this was after a year of really particularly furious searching on my own part that began when I uh, encountered a monastery uh, in Virginia uh, that my mother had actually suggested I go to—a Catholic Trappist monastery—and it just it, it lit something up in me at that time, and something was. Working itself out in me that I really didn't understand, and that I was really desperate to understand. Uh, and so, as I uh, this was as I was, as I was arriving at college, and um, you know, very kind of intellectually stimulating place, and intellectually oriented place. I wanted to intellectually orient myself around this thing that, that was happening, and and the word proof just had this kind of intoxication for me. It had this, this power that, that uh, I, I couldn't escape. And, and there was this moment where I had this kind of inkling of, oh, maybe I can, of, of what it might feel like to understand, to wrap my head around this experience, in a way something like what that word proof seems to imply. And I spent a lot of the next uh, 10 years uh, exploring that word proof. Um, trying to come to terms with this experience that was happening in me, um, often in many cases in relation to that word.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing, you you looked back at one of the classic uh, seekers of a proof, St. Anselm, and one of the observations you made as you grappled with that, and with the whole way this question has been taken up across time, is that what was really in that approach to a proof was not the question of whether God exists as much as how we think about God and how we think about one another.
2: Yes, absolutely. That was something that was so striking to me. And, you know, this was a time uh, when the new atheists were just getting going. This was right after nine eleven. Uh, those were the things that were happening in the world around me. Um, and so, so this question of does God exist? Is religion real? Is it something that uh, what, what is its relationship to violence? The stakes of these questions were very, very high, and they were swirling around me. And, and especially they were framed in terms of that question, does God exist? Mm-hmm. You know, is, there, is there anything there there, right? Mm-hmm. And as I started diving into the tradition of what I thought would be people trying to answer that question, I actually realized that that was not so much what was on their minds. And, and the, the real power of a lot of these arguments, of these so-called proofs, um, Anselm's being um, a particularly uh, vital one, uh, is in the kind of relationship that they're forging. Um, the way in which they express God in and through a, an account of relationship between people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, a lot of the philosophical language that Anselm uses in that argument um, uh, uh, that which is uh, that, w- that then which nothing greater can be conceived I realized was also in a letter that he had written to a friend describing his admiration and affection for this friend mm. You know that this language that is always presented in these textbooks as being a kind of yes or no cut and dried logical statement was for him a statement of affection. Hmm. It was still a statement of logic, but you can't separate that logic from that affection. You know? And so in the, in the course of, of, of entering this question of proof, wanting that yes or no answer for myself, um, I had to come to terms with the fact that the way I'd been framing the question, the way the question was being a fra- framed around me, was not the only way to do it. And maybe it wasn't the best way,
0: or maybe even the most interesting way. So, this your your generation, that this age right now is has given rise to this phenomenon that's been defined by opinion polls called the the nuns N O N E S. You know, again, it comes from a multiple choice question, and um, and nuns refers to people who say that they have no religious affiliation um, or not. Ready to put that label on themselves it 's something like twenty percent of Americans now and one third of adults under thirty um, are religious self described religiously unaffiliated, but I have all kinds of philosophies, and you know it is it is so false and misleading to characterize this as a group of non religious people um, and I just i 've really been looking forward to this discussion with you because I want to ask you about that because it seems to me that what you're describing which is you know as much is trying to figure out what these traditions are about at their heart and across time and space and in their best expression and often not being religiously affiliated because you don't see the traditions living up to what they're capable of mm-hmm. I experience a lot of spiritual searching, a lot of theological curiosity, and certainly a lot of ethical passion. Mm-hmm. So tell me, tell me how you um, how you t- think about the nuns and what's going on there.
2: Well, it's a really it's a really uh, uh, you know vexing formulation. First of all, it's impossible to pronounce without also spelling, right. uh, which is a problem. <laughs>
0: I would say it's not the ones on the bus. Is <laughs> I what find I
2: myself doing yeah. that a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and I think it, it requires us to turn our, our heads around a little bit. Um, on the one hand, one thing I experienced when I became a Roman Catholic... Uh, you know, drawn in by this medieval contemplative tradition, as well as this tradition of of courageous social witness, um, exemplified by like the Catholic Worker and many other um, uh, uh, examples throughout the the, the history um, and around the world. Um, I came into Catholic churches and realized that many of the people who were going to those churches, who were still uh, around—I was in college, so it was young people who were sticking with it—they didn't really know about that stuff. They didn't know their own tradition. Um, They were kind of keeping on, um, in many cases, certainly not all, but with a kind of inertia. Um, On the other hand, people I found outside of these these spaces, of these churches— were intensely interested in these questions had had very good questions that they were trying to think through and work through they didn 't have a kind of a kind of tether they didn 't feel like they could really commit themselves to these institutions, um, but they were curious and they were looking for something and It was so striking to me to kind of fast forward to book two, which you know in my head kind of Fits together with book one in these funny ways, um, but well, so but. let me just—I'm
0: going i, I want to name the titles because they're great titles. The first book one is "God in Proof: The Story of a Search from the Ancients to the Internet," and book two is "Thank You Anarchy: Notes from the Occupy Apocalypse."
2: Right. Thank you for the footnote. <laughs> As I was saying, God book and Occupy book—we can call them. Yeah.
0: That. Okay. The God and the Occupy book. <laughs>
2: um, when people in this, young people in this secular, social, political movement started turning their attention to churches, and sometimes actually, for instance, protesting in front of churches, it wasn't that they were protesting that this was a church or the, the things that a church would claim to believe. What they were actually saying was, church, act like a church, right? And these were people who, you know, many of whom had never really had a, 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 been a part of a church community or a, another kind of religious community. Or if they had, they'd had some experience of alienation. Some of them were still part of these communities or were continuing to be or had joined them. But the general identity was one, it was a kind of that of the nuns, right? Mm-hmm. But it was so striking to me that that was, that was the cry. Act like a church. Um, and, you know, I still keep on, my, uh, on my, uh, uh, the, the background screen on my little cell phone um, while I'm pulling up my Facebook and my Twitter and all that stuff, is uh, a, a picture of what happened after Hurricane Sandy when those occupiers filled churches with, um, with rescue supplies. You know, through a process of organization, not managed by the state or by corporations. That was occup- corporations. what became
0: what they called Occupy Sandy.
2: Occupy but Sandy, actually, yes. I
0: don't think that was quite as much in the headlines or covered as much. I'm not sure people necessarily know that Occupy Sandy was something that grew out of Occupy Wall
2: Street. Yes, so why you tell
0: that story a little bit?
2: Well, absolutely. So when when uh, Hurricane Sandy uh, hit New York City and, and surrounding regions. Um, immediately, uh, a small group of people who had been involved in Occupy Wall Street, who knew each other through that protest experience, um, decided that they were going to organize some kind of relief effort. They had to do something, and so they did. And they happened to be uh, had the first website up, uh, the first kind of place on the ground where people could deliver supplies in churches, uh, and uh, and they uh, uh, ended up becoming a major part of the early uh, phases of the relief effort, uh, which is still ongoing and is still um, tremendously unequal. But it was really interesting to see in the course of that process um, the way in which this group of people, uh, who, many of whom did not have comfortable relationships with, uh, with traditional religious institutions, um, work with uh, with religious folks, work with these religious communities, on the one hand, see the power of those communities, you know, see the resilience of those communities in a way that you know, their movement had not been able to, to build for itself. Um, uh, and on the other hand, um, to, to, uh, 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 to see what they could draw from the ideas of those traditions. They started talking about jubilee, you know, they started talking. They started t- recognizing that there was something real in this religious language um, that connected with the kind of with the frustrations that they were feeling with the society around them.
0: So sometimes I think that um, I think about Bonhoeffer's mm-hmm. phrase "religionless Christianity," which he didn't really live to develop. You know, he wrote in his letters and papers from prison, where he died, the Nazi prison where he died. But he, in his era, and a very different set of circumstances, but in his circumstances where the church was completely co-opted by a a corrupt state, um, he came to believe that the essential truths and the the essential impulses of Christianity would survive even in the absence of religion. And sometimes I, I feel like you know, what you're describing is, uh, you know, whether you agree with the politics of Occupy or not, that passion for social justice, which has been carried across time in a lot of our religious institutions, alive and vibrant, and, and actually uh, making a practical difference in the lives of these young people who define themselves outside the walls of these institutions.
2: Yeah, that's it's such a tantalizing passage, you know, that that so many people ever since have been trying to unpack, and it's also in Bart. It's in, it's something that comes up in a lot of the a lot of modern religious thought. Uh, uh, something of it in in Hegel as well. Uh, many others. Um, there was the the death of God phenomenon in the nineteen sixties. Uh, it sold more issues of Time magazine than any than any cover ever had when they asked, is God dead in uh, you know, red type on black background? Um, and there's, something, there's something tantalizing about that question. And is the church really necessary? Are these communities really necessary? My feeling about it, and we can't know what Bonhoeffer thought, but I think that these communities are necessary. And I think these institutions the tra- the traditions are necessary. Are... Mm-hmm. Traditions, communities, institutions. Yeah. But they are necessary only to the extent, of course, to which they're willing to undertake that paradox that uh, I think is at the heart of any religious tradition, of constant renewal alongside respect for tradition, of, of a space for a prophetic voice in the midst of the kind of priestly cohesion. You know, that's, the, that's a tradition that, or that's a tension that you see um, you know, in so many traditions, it's something that we all confront in so many different ways. And I think that's, that's a challenge that we nuns, the nuns amongst us, are facing right now. I think, I think there isn't a satis- sense of satisfaction with being a nun. It's, right. It's, it's not an ending point.
0: Right. And... So what this makes me wonder is if the nuns, and again, I just find the language so awful in so many ways, are actually, you know, like monastics in the early centuries of Christianity, these forces for spiritual renewal that actually collected outside the institutions, if the nuns, in fact, the new non-religious, may be the forces that will renew religion in this century if it is to be renewed.
2: You know, that's a, that's a really, I think, an important connection to draw. You know, the monastic movement formed in, in Christianity, at least, um, right about the moment when Christianity became the religion of empire. You know, it formed in response to the, to the institutionalization of the faith, that this recognition that there has to be something else. There's another part here that we're missing when we're just doing the institution. And and the institution institutions will always fail us, and the institution they felt was failing them. And I think that's something that every every generation has to has to confront in new ways. Um, you know, I was uh, in the last year or two, I, I reread um, uh, Paul Goodman's "Growing Up Absurd." This this account of the kind of dislocation um, in the in the late fifties among a lot of a lot of youth. I think he made a real mistake by just focusing on on white men. Uh, I think that as the 60s unfolded, it became clear that so much of that dislocation was a result of a kind of creeping recognition of sexism, patriarchy, of, of racism in the society. Um, but but um, what he did point to that was so important is recognizing that that dislocation was as much it might, as it might have been the agency of these young people, it was also a kind of necessary response to uh, the, the um, hypocrisy uh, being expressed by institutions around them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, um, we've talked about di- diversity a lot this week um, at Chautauqua, and there's this funny thing I have to tell all of you. So I, I wanted to put together a, 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 as diverse a program as possible for, for these five days. And, and it has been in so many ways. And I only noticed at the very end that, that I, I didn't pay any attention to religious diversity, okay? and we have four Roman Catholics. Four, four Roman Catholics and one Methodist. And, you know, to the common, the, only, the biggest common denominator for my life of that is that my Southern Baptist grandfather would say, none of you are going to heaven, you know? <laughs> um, but on the other hand, but on the other hand, you know, any of you who have been here all week, there, you could not have a more diverse four Catholics, right? A, a Brazilian uh, intellectual, a Mexican American writer, uh, African American Catholic, grew up in Alabama, and and Nathan, who grew up uh, and and adopted Catholicism as an adult, you know. So so uh, I've, that's really really been fun unpacking this word diversity. You also talk about the um, confrontation with diversity and the and the difficulty of it as something that was very challenging inside the Occupy movement.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it was really kind of crucial to the to the undoing of the of the community that formed there. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of of uh, violence happening uh, around the, the occupation that formed in New York City and and um, the many many occupations in cities all around the country and around the world. Um, but the kind of internal tension, especially in in a lot of the big city. Um, occupations in the U.S. ended up being about about race and about class, um, about the things that divide us that we don't know how to talk about. Um, we are the 99 percent was this rallying cry, but um, it turned out that we are the 99 percent in a lot of different ways, and some of us are have been more impacted by, by uh, the kinds of economic inequality and, and uh, uh, inequity that, that um, the movement was so concerned about in far graver ways for longer periods of time through generations. Um, and, and as the movement, as people in the movement came in, the educational process that I would see happen again and again was that suddenly people were realizing as they kind of stripped away the, the usual political discourse, you know, no one was talking about candidates, nobody was talking about Herman Cain's sexual foibles, which everyone was talking about at the time. Um, it was, it was uh, uh, People started recognizing the pain that so many in our society are carrying, that we don't have language to talk about. And because the movement had not initially been built around that pain, built around uh, leadership by people who are most impacted by the system, um, uh, it ended up marginalizing a lot of those people over and over again. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that was deeply frustrating and deeply hurtful. Uh, it's something that we see in movements all the, a lot of the time, you know, that the, mm-hmm. the injustices in the outside world replicate themselves. Um, inside any community where we find ourselves, where we try to constitute ourselves and start over again, uh, but but it was uh, deeply puzzling and deeply troubling to many people, and and um, you know, was, I think uh, for the better, changed a lot of lives. You know, it sent a lot of those people often to into places mm-hmm. where they can where they can support those who are most vulnerable, where they can. Um, you know, connect the local with the global in in a way that they hadn't thought to before.
0: And and you know, I think that's part of the story that hasn't really been told. Um, it was certainly true of the civil rights movement that it you know it spawned these other movements um, because those injustices within the movement themselves became so apparent and so problematic. Now, certainly, we have a very short sense of time in this culture, so it looks now like Occupy failed and went away, right? I think that's how many people think about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that legacy that still lives on among us um, in quiet ways.
2: Well, one of the great privileges for me uh, while I was working on covering um, what was happening with the Occupy movement, was I was also had, had this responsibility to edit columns that were being written for this, this website, wagingnonviolence.org, um, by a pair of, of civil rights veterans. Um, and one of them had been working with SNCC, one of them had been marching with King. Um, these were people who were closely involved in the organizing work uh, of that movement and many movements since. And, you know, I'd, 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 be talking to them and say, you know, the, the media is saying this, everybody's, um, uh, uh, coming up with the, where are the demands, who's, who are the leaders, all these kind of usual questions. Um, this is chaotic. It doesn't make any sense. Um, everyone was saying this, what do I do? Are they right? And, uh, and, and these folks would say, yeah, that's what we were dealing with too. It's okay. It, these, it's how these things go. Just roll with it. Um, and, and, that that kind of that kind of recognition was so powerful to me, and also I think so missing. It's it's such a reminder of the amnesia that we give ourselves about uh, about our social movements. You know, yeah. we tell our history uh, uh, in the stories of great men, um, and and that's that's such a such a tiny 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 slice of of what really moves, what has moved our history, uh, and, uh, and, and we forget, uh, what these movements have looked like, uh, and, and we forget how to build them, uh, how to build strong ones in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. I did an, a conversation, um, at the end of last year with, which included Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons, who was one of the leaders of the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Mm-hmm. She was about 19. And, uh, it ended up kind of being a lesson for all of us. Yeah, right. We remember now, fifty years on, we have this triumphal memory of the march on Washington, the Sel, you know, Selma to Montgomery, and I mean, just just these mundane realities were so important. Where I, I said to her, she, she'd written about. Um, going to Mississippi, and I said, you know, I noticed you were writing about the same period in which the March on Washington happened, and you didn't mention it. She said, the March on Washington? My parents wouldn't let me go to the March on Washington, <laughs> right? They said, that will be dangerous, you know. What kind of, I mean, So, that, that you know, we have this idea now that that they all knew what they were creating, and, you know, that ultimately there would be this triumphant memory of it. And they didn't, and these kids had all the resistance that kids now have from their parents. Um, anyway, that's kind of an aside, but it is important. Because if we don't remember the human complexity and messiness, um, then we, we, we tend, I think, to overestimate how hard it feels for us
2: to get mm-hmm. things moving. Absolutely, absolutely. And you saw this so much uh, in the course of the, of the disappointment and frustration that, that the Occupy experience led so many idealistic uh, people toward and and I think a lot of the reason for that was actually fall, actually fell on the store on the shoulders of storytellers. You know, um, uh, a lot of these a lot of these people were working with the story that was told, for instance, about the uh, Tahrir Square uprising in Egypt. Yeah. Um, this was right in the midst of a global uprising. They were they really in many cases saw themselves not as uh, Americans rising up as like the, another kind of Tea Party, but as actually joining a global movement that was yeah, happening was around the world. It was very striking
0: to me. You wrote as you start, you're, you're telling about. You said I had been watching revolutions from a distance since the beginning of the year.
2: Absolutely, and one thing that I was noticing about the way those stories were being told was that. It was just about the, the, the flicker that happens in, 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 uh, on the streets uh, for three weeks. It was just about the flash, uh, about the spectacle. And uh, again, through my work with waging Nonviolence, I had been in touch with, with organizers who had been working with uh, Egyptian activists for years and years and years, and had been developing a lot of the networks out of which that uprising came. So when I saw the CNN reports, I thought well that 's not that 's not really the story there 's another drama here there 's a drama of long and patient organizing uh, and 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 failing and failing and failing seemingly over and over again. Mm-hmm. There was another story of what was going on in the midst of it about what unions were doing about the ways in which the texture of of Egyptian society was shifting at that moment and and in the ways of course in which uh, uh, it would it would flip back um, and and I think because of the way we told that story, it set up a lot of young people uh, uh, for, a kind of, for a kind of disappointment. Yeah. And then it set up a lot of other people to say, where's your Martin Luther King coming from the sky to yeah. tell you what to do? Um, it, it was a very strange set of expectations that we've been prepared for by the way we tell our stories. Um, and, and I think uh, it's, it's, it's very important for those of us who, who tell stories to, to break through that.
0: Yeah. So let, let's talk for a minute about technology. Um, I, I like this language I've been hearing lately of digital natives, that people of new, new emerging generations have grown up and are native. And I, I, th- I think that's helpful because I think the rest of us um, spend a lot of our time you know, aware that we walked onto this frontier in midlife. And we may never catch up, and we are trying to learn the language and just be oriented, and that's the best we can do. But um, digital natives are going, are going to be differently hardwired and have different instincts and intuitions. And I, I wonder what your, if you have a sense of that, of how technology is forming and reforming human nature, capacity? I,
2: I think that term, digital native, is, is troubling. Do you? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny word. Um, there is something true about it. There, there's definitely something true about it, and there's definitely ways in which this experience is shaping us. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize um, what kind of natives are being produced by the kind of technology that we are I think, in many cases, consuming. Um, you know, it, it, in some ways, it's analogous to uh, the shift from a generation that knew how to repair cars to a generation dealing with cars that, um, that can't really be repaired except by computer and expert and uh, uh, garage, right? You have to send your car back to the manufacturer in order to get it you know, even the tiniest thing, and they just replace the part rather than actually fixing it. Um, I think something like that is going on with, with, um, with a lot of the technology we interact with. Um, a lot of us, a lot of, you, know, you see people growing up knowing how to use this stuff the way that it's been set up to use, but they don't necessarily have a, a whole lot of knowledge about what's going on back there
3: mm-hmm. or yeah. what
2: other kinds of choices could have been made in designing those things. You know, why is it that we're using Facebook instead of, instead of something that we control, you know, that we can make decisions about privacy for? Um, why is it that you know, we're stuck in, uh, in many cases, using operating systems that, we're, that we have to update all the time in order to get the latest software and we pay for every round of updates, uh, rather than being able to use um, community-driven open-source software? Hmm. You, know. you
0: started out as a, studying computer science, right, in college?
2: Yeah, I was drawn to yeah. that. Really, for the same reason I was drawn to religion, because I was interested in the stuff that was that was affecting our imaginations. Yeah. You know, I had this idea that I might do a thesis about how people organize their, their files on their computers, right? Because some people have a total mess where everything's everywhere, and then some people have everything very beautifully displayed. But we never talk about how and why we make those decisions, and I was just so curious about that. But it's those decisions that I'm interested in technology. It's not yes or no, technology or no technology. It's what kind of decisions can we make about how we use that technology how we structure the economics of it, um, how we build communities around it. You know, there's been this idea running around for a decade or so that um, it would be a lot more efficient if we used uh, something called mesh networking rather than the traditional um, ISPs and and uh, uh, you know wireless uh, networks that deliver our our internet. This would be. You know, a way in which people are basically feeding each other the internet all the time, rather than everyone getting it independently from Comcast or or whichever. Um, But it doesn't work, partly because we're not organized enough, our neighborhoods aren't organized enough to make that happen, to build the relationships that that kind of networking would happen. in. And I was, uh, you know, the people who do build those kinds of networks always have to do it on on the basis of existing offline flesh communities. So I think it's so important <laughs> yeah. that when we talk about technology, we're also able to talk about how we relate to each other in other ways.
0: And, you know, Sherry Turkle, who wrote that um, book that got a lot of attention a couple of years ago from MIT, Alone Together, um, she, she makes this really important point that we, because the internet has so quickly taken over so many aspects of our lives, we feel like it's full-blown, and in fact the internet is in its infancy, and it's up to us to grow it up and to shape it to human purposes, that I really do think that has to be the work of, of this gener- the new generations. Right? That, that we, you, you know, Maybe you all don't know how to repair the back end of the internet, but we'll never be able to figure it out.
2: Well, and I've been spending a lot of time lately exploring some of the frontiers of ways in which people are doing that.
0: Yeah, so tell us. Um,
2: you know, for instance, I was just uh, at, a, at a place in southern Italy where activists, hackers mainly from around Europe, you know, kind of technology activists, have been, have, uh, been gathering and actually adopting and playing with hacking, so to speak, the rule of St. Benedict. <laughs> the rule that's the basis of Western Christian monasticism. Looking at it as a kind of protocol, as a kind of basis for 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 building sustainable, sustaining communities. You know, they look at the way in which monasteries uh, carried civilization through the Dark Ages. You know, preserving the art of writing, and now in the midst. Of this uh, uh, this tech- regime of technology in which everything is monopolizing and and surveillance is is spreading everywhere and we don't know what to do about it and we don't know how to protect ourselves or what that might even mean that they're that they're looking to this kind of religious legacy as a means for starting from scratch and thinking about their about what kinds of reorientations they could make in their relationships with the technology that they're using and how they could build livelihoods for themselves in a way kind of analogous to, to, to monks. And again these are not people who affiliate themselves with any religious communities mm. uh, in particular. Yet they're drawn to something that is in these traditions. They recognize something is there and uh, and they don't feel that they can go to the to the existing institutions to explore these. And so they're kind of um, playing around on their own.
0: That is really interesting. Um, I, I also find there's a paradox. As much as we talk about how technology is dividing us and we're all on our phones, which we are, um, there's also this total paradox that like, this is the age of convenings, And I mean, even in our in our media space, you know, people. The more interesting the digital spaces get, the more people say, "We'd really like to get together, meet each other in person." Um, You and you said this beautiful thing. This is from your God and Proof book, but to me, it's a it's a it's a way to talk about this, and it actually kind of goes back to what you said about Saint Anselm. You know, reason alone, one way or another eventually turns into reasoning together. It sees the light of day, it meets its own history, it strikes up a conversation and is never the same afterward.
2: And that, that was something I saw very vividly in the midst of the Occupy movement. Um, here was something that was organized on the basis of an email that got sent out by a magazine with no actual on the ground organizing initially whatsoever. And it got spread and went viral. It, was, it started because it went viral on the internet. Right? This is as internet-driven as you can get. Every uh, action would be advertised through social media, primarily. Uh, uh, it was driven on the internet. Yet, at every major occupation, there would be a print newspaper within a couple of weeks.
0: <laughs> really? Yeah.
2: And over time, as it developed... The posters started growing. The, the, the art, the, the, the print, it was, everything was printed. The, the first, the first uh, uh, company to come out of Occupy Wall Street was a worker owned co op that was a print shop. It was a print shop. It wasn't a social media shop, it was, it was a, a place and a warehouse to print flyers and to print beautiful uh, posters. Uh, and to do the kind of thing that, that, that people wanted to do, uh, you know, more inexpensively and with more control uh, than they were able to do elsewhere, uh, and and so it was really it was really as a as a writer as somebody who who loves books um, that was very exciting to see on the one hand this this vibrancy of of um, of uh, uh, online participation alongside this commitment to to the presence. Of the text, and, and I think that was also driven by the fact that there was this presence of people of together. the bodies, and, yeah. Uh, the bodies were, it was so important. I mean, th- that, that occupied space, you know, for whatever one might think of what was being said from it and what, what uh, you might have heard about what went on there. What drew people there was a sense of sacred space. And it, everyone knew that that sacredness was just created by the fact that all those people were there. Right. Ta- and, 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 and just talking to each other and just sharing experiences all over the place, um, that experience is so ordinary and so uh, mundane yet was so unusual. Um, so many people you 'd hear they're just talking and talking and talking and talking as if nobody had ever listened to them in their entire lives, and then they 'd talk themselves out and then you know they would finally start listening to somebody else <laughs> um, but it was this, it was this Fundamental, essential human experience that seems like, oh wait, this has been missing from our lives, and this isn't necessarily antithetical to technology, but it demands that we have a different kind of relationship to it.
0: Okay, let's involve you in the discussion. This mic is on, um, and we'll have you know ten minutes or so for your questions. I I do want to say, in terms of the redemptive qualities of technology your fiance is here today and you told me they're getting married in a month yeah <laughs> um, and and Nathan told me that they met through a dating site that a friend of his created <laughs> and what did you say you said something really this is why I don't like to have conversation before the conversation you said it's a it's a 21st century way of people meeting through friends.
2: <laughs> Basically, yeah. It was, it was a case where a friend of mine is a computer programmer, and he um, uh, was involved in a startup to build a, uh, a dating website. And the idea was you'd meet friends of friends there. You could only see people who knew somebody you knew. And it was a great idea. Uh, it ended up kind of catching on in other guises, but, um, but that particular project didn't work out except... Uh, except I met the wonderful woman I'm about to marry through it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay. Yes. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before you do that, I need to do my radio thing. Sorry. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with writer and millennial generation public intellectual Nathan Schneider. We're in the Outdoor Hall of Philosophy at the Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York.
4: The um, Occupy Wall Street Movement... Could you please give us a Twitter like synopsis of its origin, its purpose, its goals, the outcome, and specifically what was in that uh, email that went viral?
0: I'm going to give you 280 characters for that. Okay?
2: <laughs> the email just said Occupy Wall Street, bring tent. What Is Our One Demand, September 17th. Um, the What Is Our One Demand thing kind of got ditched in the course of things. Uh, but something about that, those words, those three words, Occupy Wall Street, resonated with people. And um, I think any of us who, who uh, uh, don't see why need to look a little more closely into the structure of our society um, and the role that, that Wall Street is playing in people's lives, um, however seemingly disconnected it might be. Uh, those three words resonated with um, millions and millions of people. Uh, they knew exactly what that meant. Um, you know, they knew that somebody is benefiting from, from uh, their labor and, uh, uh, and and that something needed to be done about it. Um, you know, another another three words that I think um, were very, very important for me in understanding what was going on. Again, came from the Spanish uh, uh, occupation movement that uh, had begun in May of 2011 in Spain, in Madrid. Uh, they they rallied under the banner uh, "Real Democracy Now." Um, and and that's very powerful. Um, it sounds very ordinary, but I think it's very powerful. You know, we grow up being told that we live in a democracy, um, uh, and yet, over and over, experiencing you know in small interactions and in the grand politics, uh, uh, a, a const, constant messages that we really have no agency, uh, that, that that we. Uh, 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 have no control over, over our futures. Uh, that that uh, uh, we can't change. Uh, uh, we can't we can't stop our society from destroying the planet. For instance, what, why is that? What, what what's what kind of society is one that can't stop itself from destroying the planet? So I think. That's a long answer, but those are a few, a few short little slogans, a few short little tweets that I think actually say a lot, a lot more than they're given credit for.
4: I'm under the impression that the Occupy Wall Street movement was stopped by law enforcement. Uh, Yet, I I am also under the impression that it was a peaceful demonstration or a peaceful gathering of people exercising their right to assemble, the right to assemble freely and peacefully. And um, I, I think that's, you can correct me if that's not right. And so then it got dropped by the news. The news media didn't follow it up. And I certainly intend to read your book because I have wondered... Uh, and have not known about anything that was going on as a result of it. And I've just recently finished reading um, The Bully Pulpit by Doris Karnes Goodwin and was reminded with great joy about the role of the muckrakers um, that Teddy Roosevelt used to such advantage to uh, get some of the progressive reforms that he was fighting for. Um, William How- Howard Taft had some of the same goals, but he didn't use the press in the same way. But I was uh, I became aware of the power of investigative reporting, and that was an era when there was no Internet, no TV. Uh, the, the, the mass media were the newspaper and the magazines like McClure's magazine, um, the monthly that did such famous investigative reporting. And I long for that now. Uh, I feel that we have corruption here and corruption there and overwhelming problems that we don't get what we need to know in order as a population to mobilize ourselves to do something. Okay. And I'm wondering where, if you think there's some place there... That is happening that I can go to. Where now is that kind of investigative reporting that we as citizens can use as a basis for action?
2: The second question, first in one word, in the spirit of the tweets, leaks. The the leaks, Snowden, leaks, WikiLeaks,
4: Edward Snowden.
2: Um, th- these are the places where we've uh, where we've been forced to go for for our muckraking. You know, these are the sources um, uh, where uh, where a lot of young people feel like uh, you know the it's the only place uh, they can trust is when somebody rests the information from uh, those in power because they don't trust the powerful um, to give them the information. Uh, that they deserve about about how things are actually being run, um, and so whatever you think about um, about the the, the the true ethical dilemmas uh, involved in in, uh, in this kind of pattern of leaking that's been going on, uh, the power of those leaks I think is really indicative of of the failures of uh, of government and and also of media to to build trust. You know, among a generation that is is looking for something to trust.
4: Well, if I understood you um, correctly, you said leaks. I'm
0: sorry, we've got. But, to, I've got to okay. let other people ask questions. Okay, yeah, thank well, you. let yeah. him finish. But oh, but you, I,
2: leaks, yeah. I I would also like to say something about your first question. Um, on May Day in 2012, Occupy uh, Wall Street organized a, a giant march uh, uh, through New York City. Uh, you know, 30,000 people, and I I walked down with a with a uh, nun in her 80s, who I, who I have had run into over the years. And I saw her walking on her own with, with her um, peace uh, uh, poster. I, uh, she, there's a huge band of anarchists over there uh, who are having a lot of fun, and we should make sure that <laughs> that, that someone's walking with her. And she was just looking up all around her. She was seeing the line of helicopters in the sky lying the whole route of the march. She saw the cops on either side of us uh, 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 armed and, and you know, covered in all sorts of equipment. Um, and she just kept saying, what has happened? What has happened? This is a woman who's been arrested many times. I've seen her be arrested over the years. Um, she's been involved in a lot of protests. But something about this movement... Pete brought out the the incredibly troubling militarization of of our police uh, around the country, uh, and and whatever one thinks about the movement, that's something that that we should all be incredibly incredibly troubled by. Um, this was not a police force. This was this was a military. I mean, there were military weapons on the street um, uh, in the midst of of, of a, a Utterly unarmed uh, uh, protest. Uh, it was it was absurd. It was just absurd. That's mm. that's the best word
3: I can think of. Mm. I'd like to say a word of support for something I'm involved with. The uh, organizations founded by the Inter- Industrial Areas Foundation, which was founded by Saul Alinsky, uh, especially in the Southwest. There's a Jeremiah group in New Orleans. Uh, COPS in San Antonio is the oldest. TMO in uh, Houston. Uh, there's some in California. I'm from Austin, Texas. We have Austin Interfaith. It's a, it's a, these are umbrella organizations that are building grassroots democracy. There's a book about it called uh, uh, Blessed or the Organized. It's by Jeffrey Stout. I, I'm reading it right now. But... Uh, these are organizations that bring together churches, synagogues, labor unions. We have a tenants association in ours and a taxi drivers association. And we, the goal is to bring forth leadership from uh, ordinary people to uh, challenge the powers that be, city government, county government, state government, uh, not so much the federal government yet, but it's <laughs> because it's, we're not strong enough. We don't have that much power yet. But we do have power locally, and, uh, and it's a way to literally build grassroots democracy from uh, – we, we, one of the victories was getting rid of the colonias along the border in South Texas where people lived in total squalor, no water, no sewage, uh, no education. Uh, and these were U.S. citizens – of Hispanic descent who had children and were farm workers. Uh, So New Orleans is where the Jeremiah Group is. They're working to stop some of the things that have been started since uh, Katrina.
0: Okay. Thank you. I think we just have time for one more question. Did you want to say something? Just very briefly, just
2: before I enter the uh, uh, the, the fray of covering Occupy, I, I uh, read that book uh, "Blessed Are the Organized" by uh, Jeffrey Stout, and and interviewed him. and, and uh, that title was just running through my mind: "Blessed Are the Organized," over and over, uh, in the midst of it. And and um, and I, again, I think that's a really magnificent tradition of of organizing in this country. That that you know, many of the people. Who wanted to do something to make a change just didn't know about, and so uh, I, I think telling those stories, um, sharing these experiences is is uh, one of the most important things we can do.
3: What is what is a mesh network? Pass. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a it's a um, a different way of configuring a, 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 an online network where rather than Everybody having a particular hookup to the big cable company, so it's one-on-one, little, little person against big company or with big company or whatever, uh, you have a community who are connecting with each other and they're sharing their connectivity. And they have a little private network within their community and then they can also share the uh, connections that they have to the outside network. It's one of many, many different ways that we could have built the internet. You know, when you talk to people who were around during the early days of the internet, you know, one of the most interesting questions to ask is what could have happened but didn't? What were people thinking about? You know, the internet didn't have to be structured the way it is. You know, it didn't have to be all Google all the time, all Facebook all the time. There are a lot of different ways we could have built it. Uh, it turned out a certain way, and I think as we as we consider what our relationship with this technology is, you know, it's worth looking back to some of the old texts, the old stories uh, um, of that time, um, to rejuvenate our imaginations, and then also to to use those imaginations to think about really more equitable, more just. Uh, 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 you know, more more profound kinds of connection that this technology of connectivity uh, might allow us.
0: So, Nathan, um, here is something you wrote, um, and and this you were talking about reading technology, reading technology, um, and I, it's, it's so interesting. You're a big champion of books, and uh, I, I actually find I have a sixteen year old son, and um, and he thinks the idea of reading a book on a computer is absurd. So I, I feel like there's, it, it's not, there's no inevitability about books going away, even mm-hmm. though we sometimes catastrophize about that or assume that it's just going to happen because Kindle is there. But here's something you were reading in that context, or right, something you wrote in that context. You said, as the business of reading technology continues along its trajectory, whether apocalyptic or utopian or both, Perhaps those of us who continue to fancy ourselves concerned readers, however much we give in to the new and shiny, might turn our attention anew to what one might call inner work. Um, you, You then also quoted William Blake. He who binds to himself a joy doth the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies... Lives in eternity's sunrise. Tell us what you care about in those lines. What that evokes for you?
2: Um, I, I found those lines uh, pasted to the wall of um, of the monk who was my my baptismal sponsor, uh, who was. Uh, one of the great friends and uh, mentors of my life, uh, and uh, and pretty much the whole time I knew him, he was dying. And uh, at the time, he was uh, he was getting close. Uh, it would be one scare after another, one scare after then another. Always hooked up to some machine or another. A man who lived a. Uh, uh, a rich and complicated life uh, in the world before entering the monastery, and then lived a rich and complicated life there. And um, you know, and around the time that uh, that I saw that on this wall, um, we we I, I was staying at the monastery for a little while, so we got to have some good conversations. And uh, in the midst of them, you know, I, I asked him what what role. This God that you know he had helped uh, lead me toward had had meant in his uh, in the course of his process of dying, you know what comfort it had given him, and he said uh, something that I had kind of suspected, which was that uh, he no longer really had that belief anymore um, that was a, it was a the first feeling that I had with that sense of you know you, one could feel betrayal one could feel sadness a sense of loss his, his honesty about that made me feel a, a sense of gratitude and, and, and joy and, and also a sense of the mystery of how, um, of how our lives intertwine and how they, how they play out that, that a person who had been kind of losing his faith uh, Was was the same person who, who who led me, uh, guided me into mine.
0: Hmm. So last night I met with some a group of um, young people at Chautauqua. I think you know early twenties and teenagers, and they asked me uh, where I find hope. and And I I wanted to ask you as as we close. You know, I want to ask you two questions, possibly intertwined, possibly always intertwined in life. You know, as you look around at the world now, um, what what makes you despair and, and what gives you hope?
2: I think the sense of, um, of despair that I feel, it comes from the stories. It comes from the stories. When, when people tell each other stories that... Um, Uh, in which they have no agency. You know, when we tell each other stories in which uh, someone else has to do it for us. Um, and, And for me, the experiences of hope are often the stories I'm kind of grasping to be able to tell. And I know people are grasping to be able to tell, but that we see in the world where people are living that agency and building the kinds of communities that we need to, to, uh, you know, to resist the injustice that has, that has uh, 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 sunk so deeply into, into our world. Um, I hope that we can learn to tell those stories better. I hope that we can learn to see that dignity that's in all of us uh, that divinity that comes when we organize together when we meet each other face to face and even sometimes through a chat room, <laughs> uh, uh, how to tell those stories you know how to 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 hold up those moments where we find our agency and our ability to make a change um, you know that 's what i 'm looking for, and that 's what i 'm uh, you know, what I hope uh, more than anything to contribute.
0: Uh, I, I'll just want to say I, I, I don't think we could have had a more wonderful closing conversation. Um, it's been an amazing week for me here at Chautauqua. So thank you, Nathan, and thanks to all of you for being part of this.